0: You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, Episode 1, the show dedicated to Matt Murdock. Blind attorney by day, guardian devil by night. This time around, Daredevil year one, featuring the stylings of Stan Lee, Bill Everett, Joe Orlando, and more. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am your host, J. David Weeder, and I'd like to thank you for joining me in the first episode of this brand new show covering Marvel's Daredevil, The Man Without Fear. Now I think it's appropriate right out of the gate to kind of address exactly what this show is and is not going to be and why this show exists. As far as what it's not going to be, it's not going to be a comprehensive podcast covering everything Daredevil from the beginning. I don't want to do that to myself. That's a lot of work. And there's a lot of areas that I don't necessarily want to wade through in Daredevil's history. Instead, what I will be doing is pulling key issues, sometimes random entertaining issues, and yes, some extensive runs, one of which will be coming down the line around the beginning of 2014. But ultimately, this is a show about being a fan and loving a character. Now, I met Daredevil in 1986, when I had a ratty copy of an issue that reprinted Daredevil number 26. Now, the comic itself had no cover, I didn't know it was a reprint even... I thought it was just a random issue for that time or around the 70s. But I was immediately taken with the character. Now, I had seen Daredevil. He'd been around in Marvel ads or team-ups, what have you. But I didn't know much about him. But looking at this issue, and yes, this was an issue in which he fought Stiltman. Yes, I know. Stiltman is a lame villain. I know this. I know this in my heart. But in my heart, however, is a special place for Stiltman because of this issue. I just found myself blown away. Daredevil had this cool costume costume. He had this cool weapon in this billy club. His acrobatics were cool. Cool powers. He was a lawyer. He had an interesting supporting cast. And hey, in this issue, he was pretending to be his own twin, which was something I thought I could get behind. However, when you're pretending to be your own twin, don't be an idiot at eight years old. Don't be an eight-year-old idiot and think you can pass yourself off as your own twin with your family, as in those that were there when you were born. God, I was a dumb kid sometimes. Now, I had been reading comics at this point... Since before I could read when it was just the pictures and kind of absorbing some information about the characters through various animated projects or what I could find out there. This is pre-internet. Remember that. And I mean, I just grew up loving comics. I've been a comic fan through and through since I can remember. Now, as far as podcasting, so where Daredevil meets podcasting is I entered comic podcasting in 2010 with a show called Superman Forever Radio. Now, Superman is just my favorite character in all of fiction. Um, I kind of followed that up with talking about some of the other things I like. Xavier's Podcast for Gifted Youngsters was a short-lived podcast that covered the X-Men. Mighty Shield was a short-lived podcast that covered Captain America. Now, the fact that those are short-lived, I want to reference a little bit later, because that's kind of an important sticking point. Uh, Currently, I do a segment on Superman in the Bronze Age, covering Superboy in the Bronze Age, uh, soon to be covering some other material, but more on that on that show. And I host and produce a show called Pat Smash, which is an Incredible Hulk podcast. This show's a little bit different because for me, the goal, the intention is different. Uh, My goal is to bring a fresh pair of eyes to Daredevil. Um, Just material I haven't read or haven't read for a long time, or material I've read before that I'm rereading and experiencing in a critical way. For me, it's all about reading through these comics and having some fun reading comics and bringing the joy back to that, and Daredevil seems like a perfect fit for that. So this is not a definitive take on the character. This is not the take on the character. I'm not the foremost expert. I'm a fan, giving his own take. And that's why my name is on the title. My goal is also to make a show about Daredevil for everyone. Old fans. New fans coming in from the current run. Uh, non-fans, hopefully. If you don't know Daredevil, you will. I'm not here to preach at you or build a case in defense of the character. Let Matt Murdock build his defenses. He's the lawyer. I'm just a fan. It's all about being a fan. And if others find my enjoyment infectious and they become a Daredevil fan through it, Excellent. I'm achieving far more than I could have expected with this show. And for those of you who are newer fans who are coming in completely unfamiliar, the basic concept of Daredevil is this. Matt Murdock was blinded in an accident as a child. He was saving an old man from being hit by a truck that was carrying radioactive waste. In the accident, some of this radioactive waste blinded him but gave him hypersenses, such as hearing, smell, touch, taste, so much that he can run his hands across newsprint and read. He also has a radar sense, so he essentially sees in 3D. He sees better than sighted people do. And when his father was killed, he set out as a vigilante called Daredevil, using these senses to bring vengeance. He continued to be Daredevil after he avenged his father, and he's also a lawyer by day, and he is the hero that you would least expect to be seen leaping across rooftops. Now, I've been reading Daredevil off and on since that experience in 1880, and admittedly this is a character that has a lot going against him he has some rough times not just in what happens to the character because that's compelling reads but more in some of the rough runs he's had writers that didn't necessarily know how to approach the character now daredevil has currently been in a nice renaissance under the pen of mark wade but it hasn't always been that way we've had people like frank miller who revitalized the character before that really daredevil was seen as nothing more than the poor man's spider-man or marvel's batman in some cases Now, I think he is more than that. He can go to some dark places. He can be that dark Avenger or he can be a straightforward superhero. Now, Wade seems to balance that well. Not all writers do. But to me, that's what I love about Daredevil. He can be Marvel's Batman, but he can also be more. And a lot of the impetus of this podcast comes from these weekly drives I take. What I normally do is drive for about an hour, hour and a half. And listen to podcasts and I was listening to a show called Back to the Benz which you can find at 2truefreaks.com wherein they pull random comics from their stack and take a read and one of the hosts chose a Daredevil comic and most of the other co-hosts weren't keen on the character and there was a follow up email that praised certain runs and kind of gave the lay of the land. It was actually a fairly accurate email but this got me thinking. Combined with buying a lot of Daredevil comics, a very solid run from my good friend Michael Bailey, host of From Crisis to Crisis, and my co host on Pad Smash. And this kind of came together in a perfect storm in my drives, because I thought a lot about Daredevil, and I began working on this story about Daredevil and what I would do with the character. And through that, for five weeks, this was two hours a week or more, thinking about nothing but Daredevil what makes this character tick, what do I like about him, what's the secret to making this character work, and I got under Hornhead's mask, and I realized how much discussion. This guy can provoke. So, when you have ideas or thoughts like this, why not jump on a message board or create a Facebook group? Why do a podcast where, you know, there's notes and there's production and there's a weekly schedule? Well, I like making shows. I like having this semi tangible thing I could point to and say, I have this show. And it's also sometimes easier to verbalize than to type. It's a medium that I love, and it's an addictive medium. Ask anybody that has a comic podcast. But commitment is important. I mentioned some of those short-lived podcasts, and I decided right up front that if I was going to do this show, if I'm going to set out, I cannot have another short-lived podcast on my conscience. I kind of became Ross Geller from Friends, where I had three failed marriages, so I'm going to not divorce Rachel. So I sat down and said, I'm going to do this right. I'm going to use a lot of my lead time, I'm gonna plan this out. I'm going to make contingency plans and one of the challenges I want to make to myself to prove to myself is to make a show where I do put a podcast out each and every week for the show's existence across years. And that's my plan is to make this a weekly show talking about Daredevil and that's why I kept it simple. a fan in his comics. To that end I'm putting a few episodes in the can. I'm just making sure I've worked ahead enough to make this a solid, compelling show, an appreciation show of the character, but also something where every week you can come to your iPod and have the show there. And I've adopted the keep it simple, stupid method. I'm going to, on most episodes, pull one comic and explore that comic. Now, this week's episode is an exception and one of a few exceptions in which we're going to be looking at the original first six issues of Daredevil. But really, to be honest with you, I am focusing very heavily on issue number one the other five issues we're covering in issues number one through six they're tertiary they're more to get through this period that i call the yellow period because he's wearing this god-awful yellow costume and between this and next week's episode i can cover that and move on you know i just want to say welcome to everybody welcome daredevil fans would-be fans i'm excited to begin this show you should ask my wife and I hope I do the character justice over the next several years. I plan on doing this show for five years. So let's let's get down to this. Let's get down to business. We've got the introductions out of the way. After a podcast promo, we're going to take a trip back to the early days of the Marvel Age with Daredevil's first year in issues number one through six.
1: Form of an age, the founding of a family.
0: You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've
1: got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. can move. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happening to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us? I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four.
0: For soon the more man will have the entire world in his power.
1: I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth and now. I shall feel that's mine. The Fantastic Four. Little do they change the palms and the hands of Dr. Doom. The Human Torch will
0: be the Puppet Master's next victim. You Earthlings can't change the way I can. That means I'm the most powerful person on Earth.
1: I've been expecting you, for I am a thinker. I vow never to return my lord until the fantastic horror is more and the planet of Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ramatans, king of kings, master of men, and lord of the seven sons. you oh, you're just a muscular freak. Blind or fool. Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo. My is, is. An end. Shall it it drain of all elemental so, Flame on. It's time. The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witness the origins of a legend, the fantastic cast
0: Welcome back to Dave's Daredevil podcast. Now, I initially, when I was sitting down to figure out what I wanted to cover in what order, so on and so forth, show planning, responsible show planning, I resisted the urge to start off at the beginning. I thought starting with the original first issue was cliche, it was overdone. But when I thought about it realistically, it's the perfect logical place to start. It just makes too much sense. We're going to be looking at Daredevil in quite a few different ways. Uh, sometimes out of context so even though I kind of gave you the lay of the land the concept at the beginning and kind of overview of the origin we're going to take a look at the actual issue itself which is Daredevil number one which is cover dated April 1964 now at this point at its onset in the as I mentioned we're looking at issues one through six how was that year one Dave explain this to me well Daredevil was a bi-monthly book which wasn't abnormal for Marvel now As far as where we are starting in terms of the Marvel Universe, what was out on stands this same cover date? Spider-Man was having his second go-around with Dr. Octopus in Amazing Spider-Man number 11. The Thing, the Hulk, and the Avengers, and pretty much everybody were clashing together in Fantastic Four number 25. Thor was facing the Executioner and the Enchantress in Journey into Mystery number 103, and Iron Man was facing Crimson Dynamo in Tales to Astonish number 52. Now, I say that not just for context in terms of what the other characters were doing, but also where the Marvel Universe was, because Daredevil is sort of the ultimate postscript to this initial dawning of the Marvel Universe. And I say that because it was one of the last comics to be added to Marvel's core stable of books before the books became somewhat locked for about four years. Essentially, you had Fantastic Four, which started off the Marvel Universe. You we had the debut of Spider-Man. We had Hulk, a debut in his six-issue series, which had declined, and was canceled. And he had now settled in over at Tales to Astonish. Iron Man, as I mentioned, was in Tales of Suspense. Fantastic Four was going strong. We had the X-Men. The thing is, as soon as we hit the Avengers, we kind of had the X-Men, and then Daredevil. He seems somewhat tacked on, and this would go on for years. I mean, luckily, with the use of Anthology titles versus character-driven titles, you could have the Hulk with his co-star Ant-Man or Namor. You could have Iron Man and Captain America sharing Tales of Suspense. There were places to put these characters. But Daredevil was really the last book of this cast. Now, years later, around 1968, you would see Tales to Astonish become The Incredible Hulk. You would see Tales of Suspense become Captain America. Journey into Mystery would become Thor. You would have this new vibe of books in 1968. But Daredevil was kind of the last of the founding Marvel characters. And like almost everything Marvel, this issue was written by Stan Lee, but it brought back artist Bill Everett, who was the co-creator of the Submariner from the Golden Age. Now, Everett is given a co-creator credit for Daredevil, and I don't think that's entirely fair. Not because Bill Everett didn't step up to the plate and deliver some great art, but more because of the way the book came together. Now, the development of the book itself stemmed from, apparently, Stan wanting to develop a book for Bill Everett to do. Bill Everett had been out of the comic industry for a while. He was working a day job, and Stan wanted this legend back in action. So the book was being developed as a bit of a showcase for Bill Everett's art to bring him back into the fold, make him part of this new age of Marvel. But by all accounts... Everett wasn't really delivering the art very fast. In fact, it was cutting it right to the wire. So looking at it, Jack Kirby apparently did some of the original design work on the costume. And it shows on the cover, which is really mostly a Kirby cover. I think Kirby deserves some of the co-creator credit, so does Steve Ditko, because this was a book done by committee in terms of art. And that's nothing at all against Everett, because as I mentioned, he's a great artist, and he was working a day job. This was sort of a, a Night Owl type of gig for him. Now also, as I mentioned, Steve Ditko deserves some of the credit because he added in some backgrounds and secondary characters here and there. So it really was the, an art put together by committee. And what a committee that is. Now let's talk about that cover. I mentioned it's a Kirby cover. Now Daredevil is in his yellow and brown or yellow and red or yellow and black costume, depending on how you look at it. I've always seen it as brown. And I think that might be some of the shading, but once you have that color locked into your head, you can't quite get rid of it. But Daredevil is leaping over some underworld types in a panel on the left. That's right, in a panel on the left. On the right is the sequence of panels in themselves with Spider-Man at the top, the FF, our core cast of Matt, Karen, and Foggy. It does look like it was thrown together, because it was thrown together. I mean, by all accounts, this book was right up to the very wire of getting it out on time. And the cover ends up coming off as a house ad, is what it looks like. And I think that does the character a disservice. Now, inside, there's going to be another page that was the original intended cover. But this basically, this cover ended up being kind of a cluster in itself. So right out of the gate, you have this mishmash cover. It's not normally an auspicious debut. And I think that ends up working against the character. Now, let's take a look here at the story itself. I'm going to give you a little bit of a breakdown, and we're going to stop and talk about what we've read. The story itself begins at Fogwell's Gym on New York's Lower West Side, where a group of muscle-bound goons play a late-night game of poker. In walks a mysterious stranger, dressed in a yellow bodysuit with a masked hood and a brownish-reddish-black-red singlet, depending on how you look at it. And on that singlet is the single letter D. The single letter D. Let me point that out. He only has one D at this point. The stranger announces that he is looking for the goon's boss, the fixer. And the goons realize that this guy's here for trouble, so they rush him. But they find themselves beaten down, and I mean horribly beaten down, by the speed, the acrobatics, of the billy club of the masked stranger. And when the goons are sitting on the floor, nursing their wounds, looking at birds, the stranger tells them to call him Daredevil. Okay, let's take a look at this first scene. Let's take a look at the comic up to this point. Let me fire this up on my Marvel Digital Unlimited. I've also read this from the Essential Daredevil Volume 1. Now, the Essential Daredevil Volume 1, while we're on that topic, is highly recommended. Yes, it's in black and white. But that only works in the favor of the reader in terms of this ugly costume. I know my opinion isn't all that popular. Most There are a lot of people who do like the yellow costume. I'm not one of them. But let's take a look at this. I'm going to start with the first page, which isn't in the synopsis. It's that secondary cover that I mentioned. And this one is a, it's, it's a cut and paste is what it is. Well, the front cover is actually a cut and paste from this image, which is Daredevil doing the exact same leap, this time with a cityscape behind him. And he's trying to pull his billy club. Now, the color of the costume, and I'm going to come back to this, because it does show tinged with red here in the Marvel Digital Unlimited version. Somehow, and maybe it's just the mixture of red and black, I've always had this stuck in my head as a brown singlet. So Daredevil's costume was brown and yellow. So for me, that always stuck out because I thought to myself, how are you going to intimidate the underworld when you're dressed like a and bumblebee but once again this first page looks more like a house ad because we have that leap we have a very generic cityscape and then there's this little blurb that says remember this cover and it shows the cover of amazing spider-man number one if you're one of the fortunate few who bought this first copy you probably wouldn't part with it for anything sad but true because a lot of people did part with it but another text box says now we congratulate you for having bought another prized first edition this magazine is certain to be one of your most valued comic mag possessions in the months to come. At this point, nobody knew about the concept of a secondary market, so that's kind of prophetic. Not the note I'm wanting to make, but just a side note. Now, the thing I do like about this da- original Daredevil costume, and it seems to only appear in this issue, is the sequential dots on the kind of the gauntlet portion of the gloves and the and the upper shin area of the boots. That lends itself kind of. To kind of a cool visual. Makes me think that the gloves are reinforced, somewhat armored. But while I like the leaping image of Daredevil, it's a bit overused. And the front, he does have his traditional red eyes. Now let me come back to the cover because I did forget to point one thing out. While we have the very Jack Kirby-ish leaping Daredevil on the cover proper, the icon box in the upper left-hand corner, the one that does show the character kind of in a generic pose, is very much Bill Everett art. There's a distinct difference between these two in just the style. Everett's Daredevil is very thin and lithe and acrobatic, exactly what you would think for Daredevil, while Kirby's Daredevil is a bruiser. Both of these have a place. You can have a bit of a bulky Daredevil because he is going to be beating down some thugs. But you also want the Daredevil that can jump from rooftop to rooftop seamlessly and you don't think, geez, that guy should be sinking like a stone. But I'm kind of meandering from my original note. The first page of the book is the un- essentially the unused cover. Once again, book by committee. I should also mention that while we did have Bill Everett primarily credited, Sam Rosen also did the lettering. Now, once we leave this first page, this title page, we jump right into Bill Everett's art. And it's a stark change in tone because Everett's style was a big contrast to Jack Kirby. Now, Ditko is a little bit more up Everett's alley from that golden age comic strip look. But it's a stark jump because it not only does it go dark, it goes very detailed in the backgrounds and evokes a great mood. The first panel of Fogwell's gym immediately says, I'm in a dark, dark place. The next panel is a bunch of people playing poker. Dark place. It all looks fantastic and it invokes the right mood that you would expect from daredevil now the story jumps right in our hero doesn't get this grand entrance he just kind of casually strolls into the room he doesn't need a grand entrance because he's about to beat the f- out of these guys and he knows it so he just rolls in says sup i'm uh, daredevil i'm here to beat your boss up and the thing is he doesn't just use his fists i mentioned his billy club that billy club what a cool weapon. For some reason, a lot of Daredevil comics down the road keep reiterating how the Billy Club works, and they start jamming all kinds of gadgets into it for the love of Pete. Daredevil's Club is kind of sticky. It's not really a Billy Club in some sense, because it's more than the traditional police baton. It's more like a martial arts weapon, but this was before Daredevil was all ninja-fied. It's thinner than a police club and more uh, aerodynamic. And as I mentioned, Stan starts putting gadgets in left and right. At one point, he's going to have a tape recorder in there and a shortwave radio. You know what? All I want from my my Billy Club is some grappling effects. Yeah, you can add all kinds of extraneous rope to that because it looks cool, but I want more beating with the Billy Club and less police band radio. And I also like Daredevil's ability to throw it and have it kind of plinko around a room. Now, at this stage of the story, as we see this beatdown happen, and I mean, he is doing—he's lifting people up in the air with his legs and spinning them around Looney Tunes style. I mean, he's swinging people like they're bats throwing them into each other like they're bowling pins. But yeah, he uses the billy club to disarm one of the characters. And that's the panel that really stands out for me in this whole sequence here on page three is a single panel in which Daredevil's throwing the billy club. I would love to have seen that as the icon box, remove the speech balloon and throw that in. But essentially, I mean, this is two and a half pages of action. And then the character introduces himself and suddenly, man, we've got a great debut. You have my attention and now we're going to move into the origin of Daredevil, which is what this story is entitled, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Now, most of us know the origin. I even mentioned it right up front, but let's go over it again. In an official context, Matt Murdock is the only son of a single father and washed up boxer battling Jack Murdock. Not wanting his son to end up like him, Jack makes Matt promise to hit only the books. And Matt's aversion to sports or fighting on the streets causes the other kids to make fun of him and sarcastically, they give him the nickname Daredevil. Matt is angry about this, and to vent his frustration, Matt hits the medicine bag and lifts weights in secret, as his dad inks a deal with the fixer to get his fighting career back on track. Matt is in a horrible accident when he saves an old man from being hit by a truck, and a canister of radioactive ooze hits him on the side of the head. Matt is sadly blinded by the accident, but the radioactive materials have affected Matt, who has developed hyper-keen senses, including radar sense. So even though Matt is blind, he can see far better than most sighted people. Matt grows up and enters college where he shares a dorm room with Franklin Nelson, aka Foggy Nelson, as his dad begins to move up the ranks of the boxing world thanks to The Fixer. But The Fixer wants his due and Jack is told to throw a fight. Seeing his last chance to make Matt proud, Jack wins that fight, but he pays for it with his life when The Fixer catches up to The Boxer and kills him. So that's, that's the basic origin. And it's going to be revisited several times throughout this show's run, especially looking at when we get to Frank Miller and his rendition in Man Without Fear. But let's take a look at the original origin as it appeared. The first note that jumps out at me is, as we begin the origin, we have text that states that the flashback scene in which Jack Murdoch makes Matt Murdoch promise to hit only the books takes place in 1950. It specifically says it's 1950. And Matt Murdock is eight years old. Following that logic and that time frame, if it is 1964 in story, that makes Matt 22 years old and a lawyer. So how many lawyers do you know that completed college and law school in four years? And I tried to see if I missed something where Matt was in an accelerated program of some sort. But he graduates valedictorian. And that means he I mean there's nothing stating he went into an accelerated program. Now, even the accelerated medical programs that I'm familiar with here in Missouri, we have a we have a university called UMKC, University of Missouri at Kansas City that does offer a doctor program, medical doctor program that is intensive, but it's 6 years. It's 6 years. So starting at 18, that's still going to not work out for you. You're at 22, you're still going to be in school. And yet Matt and Foggy are Full fledged lawyers with their own law office. But that's a quibble. I'm gonna admit that that's a quibble, it's more like a an oddity in the book. Now Matt, young Matt, is a relatable kid, especially for a comic fan. Cause we take a lot of crap for our hobby I did. And that may be because I was very vocal about liking comics and superheroes and, and you know, talking about the gospel of Charles Xavier. But Matt internalizes it in a different way and the immediate comparison is going to go to Peter Parker who is also very much like us he takes a a lot of crap for liking his science and both of these characters internalize in different ways Peter while he doesn't shrug it off just kind of continues to putter along his own way he goes home to a, a nice couple Aunt May and Uncle Ben and Matt isn't living in Queens. He's living in Hell's Kitchen. He's living in a rough, rough neighborhood as opposed to a suburb like Peter. And he internalizes it as such. They're both products of their environment. Jack Murdoch is this rough, tough, old, you know, older guy where Uncle Ben and Aunt May were kindly. They'd already kind of set their life in a good motion. And Queens is a much gentler neighborhood. Hell's Kitchen is a rougher neighborhood. So Matt's internalization and his venting comes in the form of lifting barbells and jump ropes and just kind of letting out in a physical sense rather than a mental sense the way Peter does. Now, I mentioned that he's doing a lot of the barbells. I mean, we actually get a big sequence of this. I never had that natural athletic ability or access to that. Matt did. Now, Unlike Matt, I read Boy's Life magazine. It was great, and the amount of exercise illustration in these sequences are kind of equal to what you would see nature-wise in Boy's Life magazine. And that's a little bit annoying. Just want to say, come on, Bill Everett. We want the hardcore hero, not a juvenile bench pressing. Oh, that didn't sound right. Okay, let's move on from that. Jack Murdoch. The look of Jack Murdoch is not only distinctive, When David Keith played Jack in the movie in 2003, they applied some mild prosthetics to him to give him a more Cro-Magnon sort of look. And I have to say, wow, he really nailed that. I mean, the look. And really, he was was a good cast for that. Sort of the rough pug, you know? Now, Jack's background and backstory gets expanded more with Frank Miller and Man Without Fear. But Jack is kind of a fascinating character in himself. He's this guy who... You know, He put all his effort into boxing because that's what he was good at. He didn't do the books. That's why he's pushing his son in a different direction. And you'll notice he's a single father. Nothing is noted about what happened to Matt's mom, which lays some very fertile ground. But he's not Uncle Ben, where he's just the greatest guy on earth. You know, you couldn't ask for a better mentor or parent figure. He's very flawed. And that fits in line with Daredevil, who is a flawed hero. His power base is stemming from uh, what is perceived to be a flaw, a handicap. I don't make the assumption that Stan does this stuff on purpose, mainly because we've seen Stan just pull stuff out of his rear before, but it works thematically. And while we're on the origin, let's let's touch base with this. While we're on the origin, let's just say what's on the back of everybody's mind. Not only is this the origin of Daredevil, it's also the origin of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and i'm not making a joke there because tmnt was based on this origin their mutagen ooze that's why i specifically used the word ooze and the the entire strip was a riff on daredevil more the frank miller ninja style frank miller introduces the hand the tmnt fight the foot see what they did there And it's both sad and funny that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles went on to be this huge international sensation with three theatrical movies that were live action, one that was CG, multiple animated series, a ton of action figures sold, and Daredevil, which was kind of the basis for this, sort of the the source of the comedy, well, he has one theatrical movie, he was in The Trial of the Incredible Hulk. He popped up here and there on Spider-Man, the animated series, and he has this show going for him. I don't know what that says. I don't know if there's a greater message there. I'm just telling you how it played out. Now, let's stack the origin itself up against other Marvel origins. Matt gets the short end of the stick. Because his origin stems from doing something completely noble. Now, you look at characters like the X-Men. They're born with their powers. And yeah, they're... They're put upon and they're rejected, but that's because of uh, the way they were born. The Fantastic Four, they got their powers from being bombarded by cosmic rays on a space flight, a space flight they chose to take against all odds and advisements. Bruce Banner, yeah, he became the Hulk by rushing out to save Rick Jones from the the gamma bomb detonation, and that was noble, but he built the bomb, which kind of cancels that out. He created the situation that had him rushing out to save Rick Jones. Now, Daredevil, as a character, and his origin, is closest to Spider-Man. Because, in essence, they were at the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, with Spider-Man, the major deviation is Spider-Man's was reactive. I mean, Peter Parker's sitting there taking pictures, and a spider bites him. Matt, once again, acting nobly. Complete and total. He didn't create the situation where he had to act noble and save this old man. He went out of his way to do something noble and he lost his vision for it. Now, he gained something back. Because, look at this, if the truck had been hauling hay, Matt Murdock might simply be a blind lawyer. Or he might not be. He may not have excelled as much. He may not have been a valedictorian. He may be at a strip mall somewhere. You know, instead of better call Saul, better contact Matt. But, could have been shot completely. Uh, so, I mean, I guess there's a tinge of, of kismet to that. But, still, it's tragic and it's miraculous. And the perception of which is which, (laughs) it differs for me on the day. And I'm sure for Matt, it differs for how he views the incident. But I'm not going to chew on the origin too much more here. Uh, We're going to be revisiting this several times. It's more of this is how this is the basis of the character. And here, uh, kind of in the description of his powers, one of the descriptions talks about the ability to know how many grains of salt are on a pretzel. And as much as I wanted to continue reading this, I kept getting the hankering to go to Auntie Anne's. And a quick note on the art. The early version of Daredevil's radar sense is a little bit different than what we typically remember, but it's more accurate. Typically, when you picture that radar sense, you typically probably picture the concentric circles resonating out from Daredevil's head. Here, it's an accurate ping effect, which is kind of what it would be with a radar. It's sending it out, you know, it's sending the signal back. It doesn't look as cool, but the mechanics of the power set work, even if the science behind mutagen ooze is a little sketchy at best. There are a couple more nitpicks. Uh, there's a newspaper clipping, which is part of the art, that shows Jack's victories. Now, it credits Jack as Kid Murdoch, while the dialogue, which is from the writing from Stan, continues to refer to him as and Jack. This is one of the potential issues with the Marvel style of comics, in which... Stan would come up with a basic idea. The artist would render their interpretation of that basic idea. And then Stan would come back and do the dialogue because sometimes the art doesn't jive with the dialogue. Sometimes that's on purpose because of petty little inviting, but getting back to the story and away from infighting, Matt perseveres after his father's death and finishes college and grad school as the valedictorian all by the age of 22 and opens up a law firm with foggy Nelson where a pretty blonde woman named Karen Page becomes their new secretary. Matt is immediately smitten with her and decides to go after his father's killers, but in order to keep the promise he made to his father, Matt forms the yellow and red costume and the identity of Daredevil. He fashions his cane into a weapon and goes on the hunt for the man who killed his father, the Fixer, which pretty much brings us back to the present and the beginning of the story, and Fogwell's gym where the Fixer and his goon Slade make an appearance. Using his hearing, Daredevil knows that Slade is the one who actually killed his dad and the Fixer is the one who gave the order. There is a scuffle and the villains manage to get away. Meanwhile, Foggy and Karen talk in Matt's absence and Karen admits that she thinks Matt is just dreamy despite being blind. Matt is pursuing the Fixer and Slade in his plain clothes, and they all reach a subway tunnel where the bad guys split up. Daredevil, back in costume, chases Slade, but the Fixer suffers a fatal heart attack from the stress. Under Daredevil's grasp, Slade admits to killing Jack Murdoch in front of two uniformed police officers and they take him into custody as Daredevil takes off. And Matt Murdoch returns to the law offices of Nelson and Murdoch, where Foggy tells him that he turned down Slade's request for representation. And Matt stands triumphant knowing that he has caught his father's killer and justice is served. Okay, I'm going to move a little bit quicker through the notes here because we still have quite a bit to cover. Uh, The story speeds up after the death of Jack Murdoch, right through Matt's college years and setting up the law firm, and then, oh wait, here's Karen Page. I'm not a Karen Page fan. I know it's kind of to set up the standard Marvel, will they or won't they, but Karen Page is a just Just a complete, shallow, vapid whore. And I'm sorry, I know that's probably going to be unpopular to people who, who are Karen Page fans, and she has some really great moments. It just... For the most part, it depends on the writer and most writers writer as annoying. Uh, let me jump off that bandwagon, move on to Matt cobbling together the costume out of some old shirts. Okay, that explains the weird willy-nilly of the whole costume. At the same time, though, it's kind of realistic because not everyone has access to spandex or money for a motorcycle suit. But you just want to go, Matt, what, what, what are you wearing? What is this? What were you thinking? Oh, wait, he's blind. Whoops. Uh, we get a little bit more expansion on the Billy Club. It's a cane with a hinge in the middle to collapse it so it fits into his holster. Now, The reason I like the Billy Club so much is it's more unique than a sword or a gun. It's easier to wield than, say, like a Norse warhammer. It's a sleek, sleek weapon. It's a sexy weapon. Uh, The confrontation with the Fixer reeks of Lou Moxon and Joe Chill from the Batman origin right down to the Fixer having a heart attack. Foggy Nelson, perpetual wingman, part of Matt and Foggy's bromance, He's not as handsome or dashing or interesting as Matt. He's just in this constant state of blue balls. Poor Foggy. I say that half-jokingly because Foggy does have his share of loves over the years. He does all right for himself, but he is the brains while Matt is the charisma. Something I like about Daredevil is that he does get hurt a lot. He doesn't have invulnerability or super strength. So when the Fixer pulls the carpet out from under him, Daredevil wrenches his arm. He's vulnerable. He's human. And I dig that. And Daredevil... You know, he's using his skills effectively to track these two when they get away, Slade and the Fixer. He's using sense, he's using subterfuge by putting himself back in his plain clothes. He's almost like he's a ninja. Well, he's not, yet. Give it time. And I'm just glad that when Daredevil goes in to change costume in the subway bathroom, there's no awkwardness. I mean, just imagine the scandal. Blind lawyer found in the bathroom changing clothes. Better not tap a foot by accident, Matt. And then we kind of. Get to this conclusion and the main purpose of Matt being Daredevil is wrapped in just right then and there. We have our supporting cast in place, and then you would expect more nourished tales. Right? No. As we're going to see in a moment, Daredevil quickly fell into standard superhero fare. Rather than street justice, we're going to see villains like the Matador and the Jester and Stiltman, with his sci-fi silliness as much as i love him he's silly this story didn't set the tone that others will follow but the weird thing is others will come back to the tone of this story like frank miller and expand upon this idea this noir hard-boiled hero now as we're going to see bill everett uh, bows out after this issue and um, what we are looking at here is jumping forward a little bit the yellow costume period which in issue seven, Daredevil gets his familiar duds in time to face off against a submariner, which is oddly not drawn by Bill Everett. Now, the origin doesn't stand up as being iconic, like the Spider-Man origin, or Captain America's origin, or Hulk's. But that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing, because this makes the character a really solid second stringer. And I don't say that as a bad thing. I think it's a nice place to be, because you have the darkness and the brightness. It's an accident of the design, but it's served the character well. And despite the rush, and sort of the... The committee having to work on the the issue came out well overall. It has this dark tone. It's not overly saturated with it. It is, has a really cool revenge story where the hero actually got a clean victory. And that's a great foundation to build on. However, the thing, everything starts going off the rails at this point. Looking at Daredevil number two, which came out two months later since we're bi-monthly, the cover... Features the thing on the on it. And you should be excited about that, but apparently looking at this, Ben Grimm had a stroke somewhere along the way because he does not look right. And here's the first mistake. I, I, let's, let's expand upon Daredevil's villain base. Wouldn't that be a logical place to go? No. We're going to pull in Spider-Man villain Electro. Ah, oh, crap. It's hard for me to take Electro seriously. The dude has a green and yellow costume and snazzy lightning bolt mask. And it's a good thing they're fighting over a stage show on the cover because Electro looks like he would just fit in with the gaudy costumes on stage. Now, as mentioned, Everett has left the book. He's replaced with Joe Orlando, who is Wally Wood's former assistant, who had gone on to make a name for himself with Mad and other EC books. And Joe Orlando was also the one who designed the Amazing Life Sea Monkeys, which sent sales for those through the roof. Orlando brings a hard edge and realistic look to the characters. They have weight. Even if the story doesn't. So, I mean, within the story, the Fantastic Four is shoehorned in by stopping by to discuss a lease. Daredevil busts up a car chop shop run by Electro. And this ticks off the villain, who is also plotting to rob the Baxter building. Karen Page proves what a shallow bitch she is by suggesting that Matt check out a doctor who can fix his eyes. Because, you know, then maybe she could marry him. And sure, sure, she plays it off as if Matt wouldn't make a move on her while he's blind. That's still self-serving. And we all know what she's really thinking. That Matt would be swell if, you know, he could see. Uh, Both Daredevil and Electro decide to remember their origins in vivid detail before they get into a fight in the Baxter building. And Daredevil gets shot into space by Electro. Daredevil gets shot into f***ing space. In a rocket. Like you expect the rocket to embed itself into some moon with a face on it. Uh, Daredevil gets back to Earth. Gets back to the Baxter building by riding a horse, which is badass, and then riding beneath a sightseeing helicopter in one of the most phenomenal pieces of art in the books. It's a full-page splash and totally worth it. And then Daredevil defeats Electro with some curtains. No, really, curtains. Now, it had its moments, but this bad boy was so forgettable, I forgot I'd read it before. Every time I reopen it, I forget that I've read it, and I'm always left scratching my head. It was a bit, uh, this issue's a bit... Well, it's like your grandparent talking about the old days. Now, overall, none of what they're saying makes complete sense, but there are some cool parts to it, and they're your grandparents, so you show them respect, smile, and nod, and let them finish. Now, Daredevil number three does add a new character to the fold, and that's the owl. I like the owl. The owl is completely underrated and completely underused. Or at least if he's used, he's used ineptly. When you think about the general consensus of Daredevil, he's mostly associated with the Kingpin as an arch nemesis. And that works because Frank Miller pulled the Spider-Man villain into the book and gave him a clearer identity in some ways. However, I think a lot of what was done with the Kingpin could have easily been done with the Owl. After all, he runs an odd underworld empire. He's a bit corpulent, but he's stronger than people think. He has ties to Daredevil early on, to add to that. And I think that was perhaps a big missed opportunity to make this character a very potent villain. But that's, that's my two cents. Now, just because I like the owl doesn't make the story the grandest debut ever. The owl essentially skips bail on Matt, who thinks that he can track the villain down as Daredevil. And despite that the owl lives in a giant owl-shaped building overlooking the bay, well, Daredevil's blind. He can't see the tacky thing. But Owl makes a boo-boo when he sneaks into Matt's office, and Karen makes a bigger boo-boo by being a vapid, materialistic horror and urging Matt to get his eyes fixed by the doctor again. Actually, she, she her screw-up is that she gets kidnapped by the Owl, so she and Daredevil are put in a giant, easily escapable bird cage, or separate bird cages. Uh, and Daredevil fights a man who can wrestle a gorilla barehanded and defeats the Owl by wrecking his boat. I shouldn't like this story. It's it's a bit goofy despite joe orlando's art however it has a lot of trappings of strong daredevil stories we have a solid if incomplete villain that belongs to the character drama with karen some intelligent uses of daredevil's powers and billy club and a hood on the costume to hold his clothes well okay the last part's dumb and cumbersome and doesn't last long thankfully but the rest is accurate and as with most marvel characters daredevil takes a while to hit stride that's not a bad thing spidey worked well right out of the box But Hulk, Iron Man, they took a little tweaking. Fantastic Four even took a little bit of tweaking. Now, speaking of tweaking, let's look at Daredevil number four. It features the Purple Man, whose name is a bit on the nose. His skin is purple. And because of the radioactivity emanating from it, he has the power of complete suggestion. Easily my least favorite villain of the first six issues. However, it does really begin to progress the love triangle between Matt, Foggy, and Karen. Because Foggy has a thing for Karen, Karen has a thing for Matt, but they can't move forward because he's Daredevil and he's Foggy. If I was Karen, I would have gone with the stable and reliable Foggy. But we also get a lot of horrible non-PC dialogue in this issue, such as, there goes one of the greatest guys in the world, a pity he's blind. And no, no, it wasn't Karen that said it. It was Foggy. Ha! Ah. <sighs> but Daredevil realizes the hood was a bad plan, because people could rip it open and get his street clothes, so he ditches it and he uses the joint and the billy club to bend it as a boomerang. I, I don't, I just, I didn't get into the issue. I just don't dig Killgrave, the purple man. I can't understand the concept. The design looks like Liberace dipped in grease paint, and he has no real way to fight Daredevil. But there is a nice point that Daredevil can't be hypnotized in any regular fashion, so there's that. Daredevil number five has the debut of Wally Wood on art, and the costume develops the Double D insignia for the first time which gets rid of the single D until Demolition Man or D-Man to his friends decides to rip off Daredevil's old costume and add Wolverine's mask. Such an original character. The issue also features a villain called the Matador who looks like, well, okay, close your eyes and picture a matador. There, yep, you got it. And while the motif is lame, admittedly, unlike Purple Man, the Matador actually proves to be a foe in Daredevil's physical league in terms of acrobatics. At least some effort was put into this concept, and Wood's art is from the same school as Orlando, so they both have these weighty, realistic looks. Now, the coloring seems to be a little bit different, or maybe it just complements Wood's work a little bit better than Orlando's, because it seems like the costume goes from this bright canary yellow to a more mustard yellow, and it gives it a bit more edge, at least, at least in the fact that Daredevil isn't dayglow, And hey, Daredevil does a bit of detective work to find out the backstory of the Matador. And then finally, to wrap us up, Daredevil number six has the first appearance of Mr. Fear, and he's teaming up with more Spider-Man villains in The Enforcers. Ah, we're just going to totally take Spider-Man's rogues gallery. Mr. Fear was a former wax museum owner who discovered a potent fear gas when his cat knocked over some chemicals in his lab. And no, I'm not making that up. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking, and you're right. That sounds just like the Scarecrow. Who came first? I've done the research for you, Scarecrow goes back to 1941, but wax mannequins are scary, so Mr. Fear has that going for him. Now, actually, Mr. Fear ends up being a really cool villain and kind of counterpoints Daredevil being the man without fear. See what they did there? He's probably, outside of the Owl, one of the other most solid villains to come out of this era. So let's kind of take a look at the, the, I mean, that's the first year, six issues. So following the first issue, the rest of the year had the debuts of two mainstay daredevil villains in the Owl and Mr. Fear. It had a minor recurring villain in Kilgrave, the Purple Man, a forgettable appearance by the Matador, who would see a kind of cipher in that physical realm of acrobatics, down the road is in the Jester. Now, compare this to the Fantastic Four's first year, just the first six issues. They had The Mole Man, Scrolls, Submariner, and Dr. Freakin Doom. Those stories are memorable and, in some cases, iconic, where Daredevil wouldn't hit stride for some time. And I think a lot of that kind of comes with certain artists that are coming down the road, like John Romita. Gene Colan. They brought the right sensibility to the character, and I think that inspires the writer. It's all collaborative. Now, if you're going to compare it to Spider-Man, let's look at those first six, six issues. Spider-Man fought the Chameleon, the Vulture, the Sandman, Dr. Octopus, the Lizard, and a round with Dr. Doom to boot. Now, both Spider-Man and Daredevil had obligatory appearances from the Fantastic Four. That's just what you do. You come into the Marvel Universe, the Fantastic Four comes to visit and brings something to eat. It's like a welcome home party. But it seems that Spider-Man hit the jackpot in the villain department. So, I wonder if there was more effort going into those villains than the Daredevil villains. Spider-Man was already established. He's going to get first crack. Not sure. But the first year was not the most iconic, not the most classic in Daredevil. It's odd that Daredevil has his classic period really in the late 70s, early 80s. Just an interesting and unique run for a character. And since I'm running out of time, speaking of Spider-Man, next week we're going to follow up on this yellow costume era. We're going to look one more time. At this time period, I'm going to expand on some of the ideas that I started here this week. But we're going to be looking at the first crossover between Spider-Man and Daredevil, which means we are at the end of the show for this week. And while it sounds like I'm bashing the first six issues, I do want to be clear. They have elements in them that are pure and good and great for the characters. It's, just, it's a time where the character hasn't been calibrated. The bubble wrap is still on the concept in some cases. The raw potential is there, and there were good Daredevil stories prior to Frank Miller. But our latter day concept of Daredevil is painted very much by Miller and those who worked off of the same palette, which are many. A lighthearted Daredevil is a bit harder to wrap our minds around. And I have to say that the yellow costume is probably a big, big part of that because visually we're seeing a character that doesn't represent Daredevil in any way, shape or form. But that's something I want you to think about is that these stories were a great starting point. They just aren't the right calibration for the character. But as I mentioned, next week we're going to look one more time at the yellow costume era and expand upon these thoughts. Until next time, I'm J. David Weeder, saying justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. To subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes, where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats, and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics and their parent company Disney. I just do this to entertain so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. So please, Don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week.